I'm Roy Sharples, and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert, looking for insights, growing your career, or are you a dear friend, helping spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. Henry Ford revolutionized the automotive industry by making the assembly line produce affordable cars for the masses, which changed society and how we lived and worked by making it quicker and more convenient to get around. This helped the economy prosper by giving birth to many businesses and spin-off industries, which created thousands of new jobs. Fast forward to current day, where Tesla has manufactured battery packs at an affordable price for mass market consumption to make sustainable transportation a reality. If research comes to fruition, over 50% of the cars in the next 20 to 30 years will be electric and will disrupt and significantly reduce the need for oil. As we envision the future car, the signposts point toward electric, autonomous and connected vehicles empathetic to benefit in society with improved safety, less pollution, freeing up time and customised services and experiences through intelligent technologies. But how soon is the future? What will it entail and how will it impact people's lives and society? I'm joined with Gary Burt to discuss the forces driving change in the car industry and perspectives on what the future may entail. Hello and welcome, Gary. Hi, Roy. Good to uh, speak to you again. Always a pleasure to wax the lyrical with you, Gary. Okay, let's get right to the heart of the matter. What will cars of the future be? What will they look like? How will they be different? And what are the benefits that people and society can expect? Oh, there's a lot of things in there. Um, I think the, the starting point is we is probably to recognise that I think at the moment we are in a real inflection point of um, automotive engineering and the car industry. You know, I don't think it's a, you've only got to look at the stock price to see that Tesla has given Ford, VW, you know, the Audi group, um, um, you know, GM, Toyota, Honda, it's, it's come along. It's absolutely whipped them. You know, I think the last stat I saw, so this is, this is, you know, early 2021. Now the last stat I saw was that the market cap of Tesla was worth about the next six or seven uh, manufacturers combined. And I was looking the other night for the stat, and I think at the moment Tesla's shipping about one-tenth of the cars that Ford does. So a tiny fraction of the combined um, number of the, that car companies. Now, if we clearly there are some financial um, elements to the, the Tesla share price, but ultimately if we trust that there's some rationale to the market – the market is seeing something in Tesla that it simply isn't seeing in the other companies. So what, what is that? I mean, what is, what is that different about Tesla particularly? And it's not alone. There are other companies in that, in that area, but there's nothing with anything like the traction, the market cap. And so ultimately the funding of Tesla. I mean, I think this is probably the, the best evidence of the fact that the traditional model is going to really be facing some very big challenges going forward. 
Tesla's strategy is to enter the high end of the market based on customers being prepared to pay a premium and then driving down the market as fast as possible to higher unit volume and lower prices with each successive model. They have proven to successfully produce affordable and high quality electric vehicles and their business model integrates aspects of being an automaker, a hardware supplier and a tech company. One of Tesla's masterstrokes was not to set up shop in the Detroit Auto Fishbowl and instead California and fundamentally positioning and operating like a tech company coupled with being able to attract some of the finest talent in the tech industry. That in itself has given Tesla considerable competitive edge. Thinking more broadly, what will this mean for the automotive industry as we know it? What business model innovations will need to be considered to achieve the future vision of the industry? What will it mean for the distribution supply chain and operations components of the industry? I think at the moment, what we've done is we've seen a very narrow shift in terms of the bigger changes that are going to come up, are going to come from um, Tesla's, um, you know, meteoric growth and arrival into the market. So if the thing which I see is I look at this and, you know, I'll start with a, a UK perspective, but as I look at this, a lot of those key underlying um, dynamics haven't yet changed, haven't yet evolved. Yeah. However, the underlying technology means that the assumptions on which those were based no longer apply. So a couple of examples. One, so in the UK, um, and actually a lot of, certainly a lot of Western Europe, the cost of the car in many cases is a smaller part of the revenue model of the manufacturer. The revenue model also comes from servicing costs by, you know, a whole range of mechanisms which lock people into dealer servicing. So, you know, you buy your BMW for £30,000, but actually the money is really made in terms of the servicing and the parts over the first absolutely three for the warranty, maybe the next owner as well, around six years. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that it's a highly complex um, model that has an element of built-in obsolescence. So, you know, we know that brakes will last a certain amount of time, tyres will last a certain amount of time, but there also ultimately becomes a point at which it's not worth repairing a broken engine or, a, you know, an aged engine because it's old and it's highly complex. And whilst it costs a fortune to build, when that's done in a factory, that's really cost competitive. When you have to take it apart and fix it, that's highly uncompetitive, really, really expensive. So to just examine a couple of those dynamics, if we look at the first one, uh, let's, let's compare the traditional car then to the electric car. So the fact that it's going to be, you're going to need dealer servicing. Well, you're not. The complexity, the number of parts on a Tesla, the number of moving parts, the number of engineered moving parts that wear out on a Tesla or any electric car is a fraction of a traditional car. Now, clearly the brakes are going to wear out, the tires are going to wear out, but you don't have the same issue with the engine. It's massively simpler. You have a number of motors on the wheels, but you don't have anywhere near the problems with you know, the transmission system or the engine or the um, 
any of the complex physical motoring. Now, that what that means is you're not going to ha- be able to have the same level of servicing revenue that you had before. So yeah. that's going to be one shift. The second thing is you've got a lot of mechanics there who are not going to be needed. If this is going to be a much simpler system, you're not going to need that level of skill in the dealerships. So that's that's the second shift. I think that the next one is then to look at the finance, the financing model around this. So the norm in the UK used to be a, um, uh, essentially you would buy the car, you would put a deposit down and you would buy the car on higher purchase or a credit system over normally three years. That's transitioned to a lot of um, lease type arrangements whereby you'll put a small amount down, but you'll be paying amount over typically three years, sometimes four, to to essentially rent the car and at the option, you've got the end of that. Now, that three years, which is, I guess, stretching to four, is a, is a fairly arbitrary figure. But it's, it's certainly based on the fact that a car goes through a number of life cycles. So you have that initial three years, you have the second buyer three years, and maybe a third buyer or plus you know, period at which the car is depreciated to about a quarter or lower of its value based on the mileage. But what happens to that model when the car isn't going to suffer that degradation? So one of the reasons for getting rid of a car and not having it too long is because the cost of repairs goes up. But that's not going to happen with an electric car. There is clearly the issue of the battery, which is, you know, one huge cost but most of the other repair costs are either going to re- be removed or reduced because, you know, in terms of what can go wrong, you've got, you know, the, the braking system, but that's going to be no different. But you're not going to have that big problem with engines. You're not going to have the problem with those big servicing bills. So if you're going to buy a car, you're going to assume to look after it. Well, why buy it for three years? Why not buy it for five years or seven? Which then brings into the fact that, well, do you need to own it at all if you're not going to drive it? And to be honest, I changed my car earlier this year or, well, the middle of last year now. And I'm, you know, it's an incredibly um, bad financial decision. Why? Because most of the time it's sat on the drive. So if the car usage is going to change, the model is going to change, is that going to open innovation for different financing, different affordability options? I think I think this is an area we you know when we talk about electric cars, We've focused far too much on the car and not on the ecosystem and the business model around it. So I think in terms of where we're going to see those shifts, yes, the car will evolve, but it's actually our relationship with the ownership of the car, which is going to be much more fundamental, which is going to be a much more fundamental change over the next few years. That brings me on to a story that I'd like to tell about Jack Nasser, who was once the CEO of Ford back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And in his fiercely short reign at the helm at Ford, Jack made them the world's most profitable automaker with profits in excess of seven billion, which made him golden at a certain point and gave him free reign to experiment and innovate. Jack had the vision to revamp Ford from being an automaker to a consumer business. He also believed that Ford could not compete across the entire automotive market, including the luxury car space. And for the latter, he formed the the, the premier automotive group that consisted of Aston Martin, Jaguar, Land Rover, Volvo, Mazda, Mercury, and Lincoln. 
and sought out to acquire the automotive ecosystem to have an integrated end-to-end distribution, operations and supply chain system experience. Um, And in transforming Ford from an automaker to a consumer business, his vision was that consumers could self-select the car that they wanted and be able to customize it online, then have it built and delivered to them within 14 days if, if memory serves correctly. He also diversified Ford's business to include e-commerce, car distribution, auto repair shops, and also junkyards. An amazing vision and so right, yet the time was not right to be able to, to realize it with such a complacent monolithic dinosaur industry to be able to change at the rapid rate of transformation needed to realize the vision, combined with really bad luck. Um, Arguably as well, some of it was out of Jack's control, such as the product recalls of the Ford Explorer due to faulty Firestone tires that Ford had to well, Ford ended up losing the, the legal case and they ended up having to fund the expense out of their own their own pocket, which cost them dearly, combined with multiple other friction points um, internally, but also um, within, within the industry and ultimately the nosedive of the auto industry that ultimately led to, to, to Jack's de- departure. He was a hands-on, detailed oriented executive but the point being in this was that Jack's vision was perhaps too early and Elon Musk's was timely combined with having the talent agility and resources available at his fingertips to make things happen at speed I think the other thing as well Gary I know I'm going off on a bit of a a tangent here but to add some humor to the, the the situation I remember a while back, Bill Gates had apparently um, criticised the auto industry, in, in particular General Motors, and there was a he had stated apparently if GM had kept up with the technology um, industry, we would be driving twenty-five dollar cars that got a thousand miles to the gallon. General Motors issued a press release responding to this just brilliantly. But rather than go through all of the the points that GM made, I'll call out a few ones here, but basically the response was, if GM had developed technology like Microsoft, we would all be driving cars with the following characteristics. For no reason at all, your car would crash twice a day. Every time they repainted the road lines, you would have to buy a new car occasionally Executing a maneuver such as a left turn would cause your car to shut down and refuse to restart, and you would have to reinstall the engine. And when your car died on the freeway for no reason, you would just accept this, restart, and drive on. There's a few other ones here that I just thought were brilliant. And every time GM introduced a new model, car buyers would have to learn how to drive all over again because none of the controls would operate in the same manner as the old car. And, and finally, you would press the start button to shut off the engine. Just <laughs> but humor aside, Gates made a, a, a great point there around really challenging the, the auto industry to, to get with it and to start getting inventive and to really disrupt itself to, to build for the future and to deliver products that was much more affordable to the masses. I think, I, I think the story 
you know, if we look at a couple of those stories that you've talked about, there are some really interesting takeaways we can take from them. So let's go back to that that Gates and GM story. So Gates, Gates is essentially saying that, you know, we've driven massive efficiency and you haven't. Now, look, if we go through all of those things that you mentioned, they, are, they were software problems. So what happened was, you know, GM were calling out the faults in essentially consumer software not being, if we rephrase it, it's consumer software not being relevant, not being appropriate for mission critical scenarios. Now, you mentioned that Tesla is a tech company. It's it's fixed this. So if you think of the, the analogy in terms of what Bill Gates was calling out, well, you think, well, any smart company, and this could have been GM, would have gone, we need to take the best of what Gates has done in terms of that ease of use, that accessibility to technology, that ability to upgrade, that ability to innovate. And we need to deliver that in the cars. They didn't. Tesla did though. So what you've got now is a, you know, is a, um, for the most part, what a drive-by wire system in a, in a Tesla. You've got a highly intelligent car that's centered around its technology that's actually done, is the irony, that's actually done to G- General Motors what Gates was joking about. So the, the answer was there. So when when GM came back, if you th- rethink this, if when GM went back to Bill Gates, assuming it's true, but there's certainly story's been around a long time, it doesn't really matter if it's true. The fact that you have that list of things is actually a checklist, is, is a manifesto almost yeah. for GM to be able to pick up and go, we've actually written our own solution to solving this, which is if we can deliver all of these things in terms of reliability, that's what we would have had replay those and flip those around and you have what's in a Tesla. You know, you have a reliable system that doesn't reboot, that does this. That, and the model was known, but none of the big companies were able to do it. None of them were able to step outside of their original mindsets in, in terms of the very fixed mindsets and see that the technology, solving the technology was the key to the future of the car. You know, we continually innovated in a very incremental way in terms of more luxury, more gadgets, more technology that was, you know, additional to the function of the car, but wasn't about reinventing the car. Whereas, you know, it's the function that reinvents, that changes the fundamentally changes the experience, which has been transformational. I think the other thing about Musk was certainly the hands-on thing is very real. I can't, I'm struggling to think of any other exec in any of the big companies that is that is has his head above the water above the parapet and he's and he's actually calling out where we should be going you know we see the yeah. same very protective mindset of everything going through 25 corporate revolution sorry corporate steps and evolutions to the point that anything that's possibly interesting has been hammered out whereas if you look at what's happened with innovation, you you shorten that. You allow yourself to put things out which are going to be contentious. You know, I can't, it, it's been a while since I've looked at, you know, concept cars and got excited about them. And then you put out the, the Cybertruck, which for me, is, it's not a pretty truck. But the fact was, it, it drove massive amount of energy 
around the willingness and the ability to have that discussion. Will the truck that comes out look like that? No, it will evolve from that. But it doesn't matter because what you've done is you've put that out. You've owned the leadership. You've owned the space. But also you've provided the opportunity for the world and its dog and every child and every adult and every engineer to come back and whether they come back directly, they start to talk about it. Not only do you own that mindset, but you've encouraged the feedback that will take that product from that, that rough cyber truck concept to something which is the solution. The exact solution of what will be the most successful evolution of the cyber truck will be out there. Now, what other manufacturers are creating that dialogue with the customers and with the market? BMW? No way. Audi, you know, the, the huge VW group, is it encouraging that dialogue about what cars should become? You know, we see we see some concept cars, but then it's taken that long to bring the concept car to life that by the time it comes, you know, either the world's moved on or it's just not exciting anymore. Um, so I think there's there's a real lot to be said. But one one thing before we before I lose this about what you were saying before, I think. When we look to the future of where the innovation will come, NASA was absolutely right. And, and every company adapted this. And it, it, it's, if you think about where this started, it started with the luxury manufacturers, you know, the Rolls Royces of the yeah. world and the Daimlers that allowed the people with the deep enough pockets to have essentially anything they wanted in the cars. And that still continues. Now, the large manufacturers then move that forward with having a lot of pre-designed options available in many cases, really expensive options as well, because they were, again, a source of huge profit for the manufacturers to produce a fairly basic model and then to absolutely rocket the price based on additions that weren't particularly expensive to put in, but very expensive for the, for the buyer to buy. However, I think there's one observation that I would make that I've not seen any manufacturer pick up on, which is which cars today, which vehicles today command the highest resale prices, the latest in their life cycle. And I was, I was thinking about this and it's like, that's a great which, question. Which cars have the highest longevity? Yeah. Or, or the greatest longevity. So which cars are in demand long after they would have traditionally been scrapped. And there were two that came to mind. One was the Land Rover Defender. So, you know, the traditional um, farmer truck, but now very much in demand. So, you know, Western Europe, they've stopped making them that, the price has gone through the roof. You know, for a, you're paying an absolute fortune for what was it, engineering, in terms of engineering technology, a really basic car. The other one is the VW campervan, you know, various generations of campervan. Huge retention of value. Now, yeah. what is it that's making those retain their value? So firstly, they're iconic, but in terms of performance, they were both pretty rubbish. Now, don't get me wrong. The Land Rover is a brilliant four by four off-road, but it's not comfortable. It's clunky to drive. There's loads of, in terms of user experience, there's loads of problems with it leaking yeah. um, in terms of the parts not being great, but people love it. Now, what is it about those that love them, that why people love them? And I think this is what a lot of manufacturers are missing. And I think for me, there's a couple of observations. One, both of them are highly um, maintainable. So they were, they've both allowed themselves or the ecosystems have built up. I mean, with the, with the Land Rover that was designed from start to be modifiable. It was designed to be repairable and it was designed to be cost effectively repairable. 
Now, with the VW, slightly different. What's happened is, I don't think it was designed to be easily repairable, but it wasn't designed to be expensive to build. But what we've had is, the, in both of these, we've had an ecosystem build up, which has provided those parts long after the original manufacturer has stopped. Why? And I think this is where we need to look at what will be some of the big shifts in which some of the large manufacturers could benefit from. It's, it's about not just being able to specify the car when you buy it, but first of all, having a car that is designed to be using user-modifiable and ultimately you know, hackable throughout its lifespan yeah. to be able to go as long as you want to do it. Now, we compare that original Land Rover and we compare the Land Rover ecosystem and the VW ecosystem for the camper van and Jeep are probably a good example in the States. So you compare those ecosystems to what we're seeing now from cars and we're seeing highly locked systems that are not modifiable, components which are designed to, you know, in the case of most even premium cars, once they break, it's, it's an expensive repair. And in many cases, if you have what can be a really minor crash in a, in a prestige car, it's cheaper to write the car off than repair it. And this is madness. It's the complete opposite of what's happened with the Defender and the camper van. So, you know, if you wanted to have a car that was going to have, or a car manufacturer that was going to have longevity, maybe they need to think less about selling the car and more about having a car that's going to be able to live for far, far longer. Yes. And I think this is where, you know, at the start, you, you're sort of having some challenge around the, the real lack of innovation in the, um, in the, in the automobile and the, um, in the automobile market. I couldn't agree more. The more they've gone down the route of trying to appeal to customers, the more they've locked in, the more they've increased the costs of customization, the more they've actually, although they've offered lots of features, you know, lots of things that you can buy when you build the car, the ability for you actually to do anything different and evolve the car, the manufacturers are rarely involved. They're not getting any money from that. But it's the third-party companies, often done without any kind of support with the manufacturer, that are getting the benefit of this. You know, and I think there's a real point here about the fact that so many of the big companies are just failing to get what is a really important dynamic, which is whilst I care about the car and what it does, I also it's a it's a statement of what I am and what I buy. And a very small amount of the population of the world has the ability to afford a new car so by limiting that you're limiting the future viability of your car i don't know we've probably gone a bit off topic but i think when we talk about creativity and innovation the car companies are looking in completely the wrong place instead of looking for how they sell the car today perhaps the the right answer and well done to jeep for having removable doors and making some way forward with this is to think about how we can have cars which are going to be much more adaptable over their lifespan and, and welcome that. What do you think? Your point around the durability and the, and being able to modify the car throughout its kind of duration, I, I, I think that's a great point. And I don't see any, I don't see any reason why that can't, no, that cannot be implemented today because the technology is certainly there. I mean, for example, imagine if the car was designed beyond the, the kind of core of the, the engine and the, 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 the hard coding of a chassis, but things like the aesthetic value of a car 
you, you could easily change the color of it through um, computer programs, right? Sorry, when I say easily, but you could um, change that. You could you could change the aesthetic feel and identity within a car. Just as basic um, ex- examples, right, of how can a technology could could do that and do that pretty effectively. The other thing as well, the point that you made around VW, especially the camper van, is. You know, that, that's highly appealing to, to, to people, similarly to, to Land Rover, because it's about lifestyle. And you made that point really well as well around people buy cars that are, are a reflection of themselves, especially when they kind of get to a point where they can afford the cars that they want. <coughs> it's usually done as a way that it reflects themselves and their taste and, and, and lifestyle. But I think the, and I think the more lifestyle-oriented um that could be infused within car design. I think that the better, and I think, I think the industry has really lost its way around doing that because it's became a lot more mechanical in terms of, it's almost like been, and this is no discredit to engineers. Um, it's almost like it's become engineering led designs rather than product or creative kind of designs. Right. And I'll, I'll come to that in a second when we speak about imagination and car design, but back to lifestyle branding is one of the key things that the business model of the automotive industry should explore if they haven't already, and I'm sure they probably have, by opening and diversifying their market is to start looking at ways where the core manufacturing of the car could be outsourced and opening entry barriers to prominent brands, for example, lifestyle brands like Apple, Google, Virgin, Nike, Disney, um, so that they're able to design and brand cars. And the actual manufacturing of that is outsourced to manufacturers who um, enable that to happen in a cost-effective, efficient, and scalable way. But things like the Apple car, I can totally envision how that would look and feel given how strong their design aesthetic and brand identity is. And I think a lot of these lifestyle brands really stand for things like liberty, imagination, innovation, passion, hope, dreams, aspirations, um, power to the people, right? And I think that's what, like, the VW camper van really did um, provide that liberation, and not just its association with hippie culture, which it certainly did, but that feeling of of, of freedom and dreams being realised. And then the other point, and this is going more into the next point I was going to make around I, I totally believe that the imagination in car design has really lost its way. I mean, if you look at car designs in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, they were extraordinary um, staples um, of imagination, and they were outrageously novel. Um, today, each car model almost looks identical and are being prioritized based on the engineering of the car to keep us safe, provide the best fuel economy, and the cheapest to produce, combined with standardized technology and software packages to design the car. Now, that in itself, even like those design packages, um, every automaker pretty much using the same one, that drives obvious constraints and boundaries versus, say, the freedom of the pencil and paper which is a blank, which is ultimately a blank sheet of paper, which is the perfect, which is the the natural tool for for creativity. And I'll go back to reusing the quote that we've used a few times, Gary, in the past um, from Pixar's 
John Lasseter, where computers don't create computer animation any more than a pencil creates pencil animation. What creates is computer animation. What, what creates computer animation is the artist. And it's exactly the same in car design. Um, it, it just feels like the engineers have kind of, in engineering-led design has, has took over. And I get how legislation, how regulation, and how safety and fuel um being sensitive to pollution, totally get that as essential, but balancing that with adventurous, um, innovative design. So, so for example, let's look back on some of the marvels of creative car design. The 1964 uh, DB5 Aston Martin, the 1970 Lancia Bertone Stratus, F, um, the 1959 Cat Cadillac Cyclone, and the 67 Mazda Cosmo Sport, just in, just incredible car designs. They really are. And then back to your point, and there was a great question you challenged us with around how many of cars designed today hold their value over time. Well, look at the 1950s, 60s, especially the, the sports cars and the vintage classic cars then. Their value is canonized. Cars reflect pop culture. And when that became most apparent to me was when I visited the Henry Ford Museum near Detroit in 2001. This place curates and exhibits the past by bringing it forward to modern day through stories of ingenuity, innovation and, re and the resourcefulness that ultimately shaped American society and culture. And what they did was they had installations from the beginning of the car, such as the Model T, and then they chronologically had installations through all the different eras right up to modern day. And it showed how the car was intrinsically linked to society and how it connected to pop culture, fashion, music, TV, architecture, and design. Pop culture reflects time. For example, in the 1940s, 1950s, Art Deco was a prominent art movement that was reflected in the shape and colours of the design, the architecture, fashion and the car. And then in the 1960s, um, the art movements then was minimalism, abstract, pop art and so forth. And that was also reflective within those various components of design that I mentioned earlier. So anyway, the point being is that pop culture reflects time and we all live in time as a human race, infusing our ideals, our values, tastes into the everyday and the design of things. So of course it is all interconnected because humans, we as humans are fundamentally dreaming up and making this all happen. So it, so by nature, um, by default, it, it will be all interconnected. I visited Portland, Oregon just over 10 years ago. And I remember sat in a cafe and I was looking outside the cafe and forgetting about how similar some of the architectural components look like Europe in Portland. What I started to notice was how the actual image that I was looking at in the street was, was not American at all. It was very European. And I thought to myself, if I took a photograph of this, Gary, and I sent it to you and said, hey, guess where I am? You would probably, I'd have guessed you probably would have said somewhere within Western Europe and, or, or the UK. And the reason for that 
it was a car design. Very few American branded cars, but even the cars that were American branded, they looked like Asian or European cars, which is a real sign of the times and fall from grace in terms of being once the distinguished world leader to where the Europeans and Asians had knocked their crown. Anyway, moving forward, imaginative and human-centered design needs to be really pushed towards the centre. By understanding the needs of people now and in the future, the economic implications and viability, engineering excellence and creativity, those are the four elements that when you find the intersection of those, that is where we will be able to unlock the next frontier of the car revolution. I think there's so much there. A couple of points that I really wanted to pull out. So the, the first one you mentioned about the branding, I, I didn't get why the car companies haven't done this. You know, you want you to think, buy a car. It seems so easy, doesn't it? It seems so it, obvious. Yeah. I, I don't, I think the problem is that perhaps we think that these, these partnerships need to be forever. They need to be exclusive. Yes. They don't. You know, so if I look at if I look at my wardrobe, you know, I'm I'm, I'm an outdoorsy sort of person. Um, so a lot of the stuff is from a lot of outdoor brands, you know. But even just as a thought experiment, what does what does a partnership with North Face look like? Yeah. What does a partnership with Patagonia look like or Gucci? So these huge, these aren't these to call them brands is almost an understatement in terms of the lifestyle commitment to, that a lot of fans of these products would have. You know, how would that, if you, you know, you're, let's pick a common, you're Ford. Yeah. I'm, I'm the marketing director of the Ford, you know, F-150 range, huge, one of the best selling trucks. I think the best selling truck in America and the best selling Ford model. Um, and now we're seeing this go to other countries as well. So huge. Well, you know, why don't you partner up? I mean, we've seen it with car companies, but not in a way that's had any meaningful lifestyle yeah. design. In most cases, it's been a slightly different colored trim and some stickers on the doors. Seat design or seat leather or stereos. It's, or, it's just, yeah. it's rubbish. Now, if you think about how you might, how you would have a, you know, what happened if you partnered with, you know, how would a partnership or collaborative partnership go? Because this is not about taking the dollar and then sticking the name on. That's absolutely not what it's about. But you go, look, I'm, I'm Ford. I want to... We want to build sustainable cars. We're going to, what would a partnership with Patagonia look like? Well, they might go, I would expect they go, well, sustainability is going to be key. Reuse, lifestyle, flexibility. So we want everything that you can do within the car to be as sustainable as it can be. You fundamentally start to rethink what your car is. Now, you're not going to be able to do all of that. But just by even having that conversation, even doing it as a thought experiment, moves you so much further from what we're seeing today, which is this, this ridiculously slow innovation. And I think when you start to go down that route, you know, another point that you picked up around, you know, having um, Microsoft or um, um, Apple engineering. Well, why, you know, when I buy a car today, I have absolutely no control over that environment. So why don't you give me a choice? Engineer your car to be that modular that I can have an Apple interface or I can have a Windows one. You know, we're seeking these explicit um, tie-ins. So start to start to think how I would have that. I mean, the reality is for the most part, the car companies have been fighting against integration 
yes. any serious integration with technology for years. I mean, how long did it take, you know, Bluetooth to properly work in cars? Yeah. How long did it take to start to see real innovation in the user interface? I can, I'm not going to do it. I can name 20 leading cars that the user interface in terms of the, the technology interface in the car is just woeful. Yeah. You know, no computer company would, would release this. No web company would release these as interfaces, but we accept them in cars. And if you buy the car, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, we're not seeing upgrades. And I think this is, you know, possibly a, a real good example of where Tesla, if organizations are not careful, what's going to happen is Tesla is going to spank the auto industry in the way that Apple spanked the mobile phone manufacturers. So we go back to 2000, we go back to pre-iPhone days. Now, Apple wasn't the first organization to allow upgrades of operating systems on phones. You know, if you had a, a Windows smartphone, you could do that. The trouble was it was unreliable, it was painful, it was hard, and any benefits you got were certainly outweighed by the, the challenge of it and the unreliability of the new OS. Now we compare that to the Apple world. OS upgrades are built in, they're seamless, they're painless, and they're costless. But, you know, and what did that? That absolutely massacred the, the phone industry. You know, we've got a lot of manufacturers, but the only two companies making any money out of this are Apple and Google, the OS companies. And in Apple's case, the, the maker of hardware, assuming Google doesn't sell a huge number of um, its own brand phones. So you, you then start to look at that and go, the car industry is not learning from this. You know, yeah. It's not, it's not moving forward. What you have is you have this environment where you have a lot of customers that are locked into your ecosystem. And the only way they can upgrade is to buy a new car. And, and you think, even if you accept that, let's say I'm, I'm tied into, so I'm tied into BMW. That's where I bought my car from. I didn't pay for it cash because I don't have enough money. So I'm paying every month. I'm paying BMW some money for a car. But in all, in all seriousness, I'm locked into that. But why? If BMW, if I'm paying BMW money, why don't they offer me the premium option to always get out of that contract and say, no, no, there's no penalties for coming out. In fact, you want to come out of that contract. You want to change your car. Great. We want you to make sure that we are so far up that list of the company you're going to buy from. So maybe when I buy a car, I don't buy a car as I do today. I buy the ability to pick from a car. And what I can do is I can flip between these as much as I want. Now, clearly like a phone, if I want to change it every year, it's going to become more expensive than changing it every three years. But I might also want to keep my car five years. So why don't, instead of, you know, we look at this as a system, the longer I keep the car, the less I pay you to keep that because I'm, I've already paid the, yeah, the cost. Exactly. <clears throat> so this is whereby the innovation doesn't have to be in the car. I think it needs to be for any company to be successful. But just having taken some of the lessons from the plat what we've seen in other platform environments, whether in phones or PCs or in you know ecosystems of cars from long ago, just embracing some of these could often could could really change the mindset of what a lot of customers think is going to be possible. And the, the company that really nails this first in a really scale way, I think, whether it's, it will need to be one of the big companies. But it, imagine if you were, you were given the job of you're, you're picking up Audi, you're a brand manager for Audi, not a brand manager, you're a, a 
the product god of Audi. And you go, well, what am I going to do to compete? Well, I know I'm going to go electric. I've got to get designs of smoother. Um, I've got to be fast. I've got to be economical. I'm focused on the batteries. And nine-tenths of the other environment you're completely ignoring. You're not changing the financing model. You're not changing the contract. You're not changing the modularity. You're not changing the ability to innovate in the ecosystem. You're not allowing me to improve the car. You know, there's so much that they're not doing. And these are not innovative lessons that Gary and Roy are super coming up with. We're just looking at this and going, yeah, why are you not doing what's happened in other industries? Because if you're not doing that, the one thing we know from every other industry, every other technology and platform industry, if you're not doing that, your competitor that puts you out of business will do it. Yeah. Um, you know, Amazon, Facebook, um, Apple, Netflix, this, 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 you know, you, there's a number of streams you can pull out. One, centricity of the customer to this, the centricity of the user experience, unlimited innovation, continual innovation yeah. at zero cost. You know, you buy, a, you buy an iPhone, you, you might go through three or four iterations of an upgrade. Um, and even if you wanted to change your iPhone, you can buy a contract that allows you to change it as soon as a new iPhone came, comes out. So I think not to embrace those is massively dangerous. But that's what's happening in the car industry. We're not seeing that. No, it's, it's, it's a completely inward industry with you've got maybe five or six giants that basically own the industry. The barriers to entry is just so difficult, so hard that it does need blowing up. Hey, your point there around Netflix is, now that would be another lifestyle brand experience where I, I can start to imagine the Netflix kind of vehicle where it's like, you know, entertainment in motion where there's <coughs> custom designed cars where you've, you know, if you're going long, especially if you're going long distances where it just becomes a whole entertainment experience. What do you think the future car could be? Could it end up just becoming a device or will it remain much the same, but just incrementally improve? Or do you think it could be something quite different? I remember watching the movie, the Blade Runner from back yonder and always thinking, my goodness, you know, like the future has never looked so beautiful. And, and I mean that visually, not culturally. I mean, culturally, it would be a massive um, <laughs> downside where, you know, the, the eye was the, the window to the soul where your eye was the facet of the body language that unconsciously demonstrated your intent and, and emotion where <laughs> Blade Runners are bounty hunters hunting down and wiping out any remaining rep rep replicants with any emotion and, and and the Blade Runner having the, the mental test that consisted of emotion evoking questions to distinguish a replicant from being a, from a human. Um, and definitely not, that's definitely not the, the people first civilized society that I think that we want the future to be, but just from a concept perspective, what, what could the future be in terms of what a car becomes? Um, I think, I think so we've, we've got a couple of um, trends that we can, we can pick up and we've covered one. I think one of the changes that will, we will evolve to is at the moment we have this um, battle and, and COVID has really thrown a spanner in this, but we have this battle between individual um, entitlement empowerment and, you know, movement in terms of, 
what's typified by Tesla. Then we have the opposite of this, which is a much more European model around public transport, you know, and yeah. I think you, you saw those two extremes and wherever your view was, there's no doubt. I think that, you know, what we've seen over the last year with COVID is, is going to make, is going to be something that's going to play massively into that change. So if you wanted to see, you know, where the changes are going to occur, you know, the irony is it's probably public transport that's going to need to innovate much more than the um, the uh, car companies initially. But I think we then go to, you know, one of the things is we then start to look at, well, if, if one of them has problems, but the other one has problems, where can we start to look at characteristics that we can take from each other that give us some of the benefits without foregoing what we've got? And it's really important that we look at... Um, we look at embracing some of the human values that we take from travel. So I love traveling. I know I'm a big fan of trains. I, I love yeah. sitting on trains. I love driving too. They're not opposed. What I don't like is I don't like sitting on packed, busy trains. So I don't like sitting on, you know, if, and to be honest, you know, if, if I didn't want to sit on a busy train two, you know, two years ago, now that's not even something I'm going to go down. It's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not a case of I don't want to sit on a busy train. I'm not going to sit on a busy train yeah. and can't see myself being comfortable with that for some time. So, but how do we start to, how do we start to move to, to start to challenge those barriers. How do we start to do this? And I think we'll see the evolution towards something that will bring us much closer to the middle. So, you know, when I, when I grew up, and I'm an, I'm an old guy, I'm over 50, but when I grew up, the oldest trains had the concept of um, compartments. And what a compartment was, was if you had a train that, you know, today we think of a train and you think of a traditional train, you will have, it's, it's completely open and you'll have all of the seats facing, you know, one way or there'll be offset on tables, you know, and you're used to that model. The same on airlines, you know, on, on clearly on trains, they'll often be offset and there'll be different lit seatings, but it's essentially a modular form of a, a very modular and systemized form of seating. Well, one of the things with compartments years ago was what they did was instead of having the train of all of it being open, there might be seven or eight compartments of six seats so what you had was you would have a corridor down one side of the train and you would have these doors into these compartments so you know what you then do is you look at a model that's i think 60 70 years old certainly from the uk that we got rid of in the 70s and 80s we replaced all of these because we could fit more seats on but we had a model that would actually be perfect for what we've got today because i want to travel with my family i can book a compartment on a train I can have the benefit of isolation. I can have the benefit of a close space. Um, I can have the benefit of privacy of, um, you know, I was gonna, this is mad for a train, but you know, that um, bio control, I can, I can control yeah. the pipeline environment. I could change the heating. So you had a, a midway. So I think we could see, I think we will absolutely see um, public transport move back to that much more um, to a way that protects that um, sacrifices um, the amount of people it can stuff on the train for the quality of the experience on the train and particularly starts to put systems in and, and um, design adaptions to, to provide more isolation. And that that's not rocket science. It could be that what we start to do is we get a, a traditional, let's say a high speed train 
And what we do is we start to re reduce the number of seats so we can spread them out. But then we just put some glass, some increased glass around this. Yeah. Now, just simply doing that would give us, you know, better um, experience in terms of uh, bio-separation, but also more privacy. Uh, it would improve the um, acoustics of the train. It would make it quieter if it's done properly. Yeah. You know, so, so I think there are things that we can do, ironically, that we can learn from a long time ago that we can move forward. But then let's go back to the original point of the car. So I think the one thing that's going to change within the cars in the next few years is not the car within the car. All the changes around, you know, sustainability. We want to see more sustainable cars. We want to see more modular, adaptable, upgradable cars. We want to see changes around the financing and the ecosystem approach, all of those. I think one of the biggest changes will be the interaction between cars and the environment. And this is something that we've not seen for the most part come from the leading companies. Why? Because it's not in their interest to do this. So it's not in the interest of a company that's selling speed that's selling performance that's selling um individualism as most of the car companies are today and i'm not calling out tesla because it, you know for their business model and their mindset the customer is probably the right thing to do but you know the right answer is not huge numbers of autonomous cars the right answer is cars that are able to plug into network ecosystems yeah. that allow them to start to understand not who understand the car in front, not by having sensors which are going to automatically understand that distance. That's going to be there, but it's also going to be about the cars communicating together, the cars communicating with the road, and the cars communicating with the wider environment. That's that for me is going to be the, the biggest shift. And I think the problem we've got, and the reason this will happen, is because if you don't have that, what you're going to have is a load of electric cars replacing diesel cars that whilst they are emitting less um, pollutants are going to have absolutely the same problems with congestion and actually given COVID and people going into cars more for isolation, it's going to get even worse. So I think if you wanted to see where we're going to see some innovation, it's not that it should happen. It's the only way it's going to be able to happen is to be able to have cars, which start to have the ability to plug into um ecosystems and networks so they can start to behave as part of a community when that's needed. Now, that's not to say you can't go to a country road and have some fun, but it does mean perhaps that when when you come to a motorway, your car isn't automated by um, you know the systems in your car. Your car is automated because what it does is it simply snaps into a, into a, a you know a managed traffic system. It's much it's probably much closer to driving your car onto a train, you know, like you do with Eurotunnel yeah. or you do with, you know, the old um, uh, long distance car transporters that you don't seem to see anymore. But I think it's much closer to that concept that you'll still be in your environment, but you'll be ceding control to uh, a much more efficient citywide or national ecosystem. I, th I think those are the, the big um, shifts that we're going to see. And because otherwise, the irony is you're going to be buying a car for a load of features that you can never, ever use. Um, you know, you might have blistering performance, but it makes no sense if there's no, there's no roads are clear enough to do yeah, it. Exactly. But if you follow this through, I think there are, there are some real benefits. Now I'm really cagey about having um, the environment override the driver, but 
you can imagine it, let's let's follow this through and you start to go well gary that works and that works on roads that works on sorry you know networks it, it works on interstates it works on free um freeways it works on highways it works on major roads it works on managed roads but actually you could start to have that work at a much more macro a micro level which is well what we're going to do is we've got these cars that can communicate with their environment that are not about sensing so we're not saying the car is is reading the speed sign that's coming up but the ro- the car is able to understand this electronically from its position about what's an appropriate speed but maybe what we start to do is we start to say on this road there's a really dangerous bend that a lot of people crash into yeah so what we're going to do is we're just going to make a really minor change and this is this could be a gps change it doesn't even need to be physical but where we see those really dangerous bends we what we're going to do is we're just going to restrict any car to not go around at more than 50 mile an hour why because once you do you might be fantastic your car might be fantastic but the chance of you coming off the road hitting the barrier is really really high so what we do is and this doesn't need to be a one for all one or all it could be look you've got a you've got an entry level car we're going to slow your car to 30 mile an hour you've got a better high performance car with a great braking system we're going to allow you to go to 50 and i think you can have intelligence in this but the goal is not to is not to restrict the driver it's just to put some guardrails around i think when you start to do it in an intelligent way that says look a a car that's built as a performance car should be able to go faster. Why, why are all cars able to only travel up to a certain mile an hour, 60? Well, what we might do is we might limit this to the safety of the car. So you buy a safer car, you're allowed to go faster. You, you buy a car with that's got you know better performance, better braking, better handling, that you're able to go around bends faster. Um, you know, so I think there's a, there's a lot more innovation. Today, yeah. we're seeing too much as this really... And, you know, I'm not, you know, we see it almost as this I'm in control or it's a socialist daring control system. But actually, there's something in the middle that we can start to do. And and I think when you start to do it, not from a and the key thing is when you start to do this, don't do it from a big brother point of view. Start to do it for the human. It's like, no, we're not we're not taking away your ability to be an idiot and crash your car. (laughs) That's not the goal here. What we're trying to do is to stop you really hurting yourself and killing yourself. Yeah. We're not saying you can't ever swerve to avoid anything. We're saying that there shouldn't be a, there shouldn't be a, if, if you're, you're going around a corner and the look, this is not about your driving, the laws of physics and our intelligence and analytics in that car say you're going to crash to allow you to crash would simply be madness. Yeah. So what we do is we're not, we're not doing this. All we're doing is we're increasing the quality and the safety of the car, but it's not about taking your ability to do it, you know, to be a bad driver. It's just about saying we don't need to be a, a, a dangerous driver, you know, and actually this becomes utterly critical when we get into network road systems, because the whole concept behind this is that cars cars are able to drive at safe distances well that really breaks down if the guy behind you can override his system and drive one foot away from your you know your bumper or your fender at 60 mile an hour you know i'm keeping my distance he's keeping his distance and he closes the distance well what happens then well i'm worried about him hitting me so what i do is i slow down more because if he is going to hit me i'm going to lower the damage by slowing down therefore the whole road 
you know, fails. The whole managed traffic system fails. So you, if you want the benefit of having, you know, the, the moving of systems, then you do have to forego some of that control. That doesn't need to be everywhere. You know, I think, I think we just need to move the quality of the debate and the dialogue forward because far too much flip between flips, you know, really stupidly between this. It's either all about the individual. I've got my car. I want to be able to drive the ability where I want, how I want, when I want, where I want. And then the other one, which goes the reality of if you do that, we're just going to have snarled up cities. And whilst there'll be, you know, less pollution, they're going to be no more, no less snarled up than they are. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think, Let's let's have an intelligent discussion that doesn't demonize something, but says, how do we use technology to solve this problem without foregoing freedom, but actually does it in a way that makes things better for people? Doesn't do it for the state, but does it for the person. I think right. that's the big shift that needs to happen. It, it, you know, far too much seems to be, well, you need to have your car controlled. Well, you don't. It, I think we can be more intelligent. The car has always been symbolic of independence and freedom. However, some trends indicate that some people view car ownership as a burden and an expense. Things like car sharing, Uber, Lyft are becoming increasingly popular, especially with the millennial generation and with the proposition of personal convenience and social improvement. Whilst we've seen a growth in the rise of Uber and Lyft in recent years, it's not been without controversy, both in terms of protection, but also rights for drivers. If we're going to see real growth in this area, we need to see companies addressing these issues. So whilst price matters, there are lots of users who care about a company having clear policies on worker rights and a sustainable business model. But this is going to be a huge opportunity area too. So COVID has seen a lot of people displaced. It's going to see even more um, people and businesses suffer changes, structural changes. And the gig economy offers a real valid, workable way to help scale you know, uh, future employment. The key thing is whether this, the evolution of this is going to be led by the companies taking a leadership position and building out the model that's really going to appeal to customers and to the, those drivers or whether this is going to be needed to be pushed by government legislative changes. The key thing is we need to see a shift in the reward model. It can't be one where the stockholders of the big companies and their execs are making all the revenue ex at the expense of a lot of those drivers. It needs to be more balanced. But the growth, when we look at these businesses, the growth of these services is going to be an increasing cost of owning a car, which is going to make any form of fractional ownership, whether that is in a shorter lease or a higher or a, a much more um, transient relationship with ownership, much more attractive. This is particularly going to be the case in cities as the costs drive to make car ownership and driving itself much more expensive. But also we're seeing a shift, particularly in the smaller cities, towards embracing personal um, portable transport, so bikes, but also e-bikes, electric skateboards and electric scooters. And this is something that we've seen during COVID. We've seen a real growth in the use of personal transport devices. So this is about people being able to efficiently get around cities. And what we, and again, one of the things we've 
you know, certainly seen is as people haven't wanted to travel on buses, haven't wanted to travel on busy undergrounds, they've looked for ways to move around the city much faster themselves. So this is a real boom time for skateboards and scooters. But we need to see some evolution in terms of standards around these. There isn't a major city that hasn't introduced either bikes or e-bikes or e-skateboards and not had a problem. So we need to look at making this a really balanced introduction that recognises some of those real challenges and starts to put in policies and processes that balance this for those citizens who don't want to use these. So this is that's the first driver. The second driver is really a desire to have greater flexibility in driving. So what I mean by this is at the moment you buy a car, well, you're stuck with whatever car you want. If we look at hiring in a more flexible model and particularly look at let's something like Avis or even Uber. So we take two different models, essentially providing you access to a different kind of vehicle. So this allows you to you know, hire a sports car, an SUV, in the, you know, in the case of Avis and the hire companies, a motorhome or a truck, depending on what you need, but also what your mood is. So fractional, any form of fractional ownership where you're having a part ownership for a period or you're renting it for a period, it gives you a lot more flexibility to change within the wider framework. And you know, this, uh, and we look at the, the lifestyle evolutions of, you know, I need something to shift the stuff this week. I want to have a, a weekend driving around in the countryside. I want to go to the park. I want to go camping. Very different trucks. And what we've traditionally done is bought one that becomes a, um, you know, a, a master for all of those, which in most cases, certainly in the US and increasingly Europe, is a truck. But in many cases, we're, we're bringing additional costs to having this type of vehicle as well. They're big, they're not necessarily efficient. And in cities, they're a really bad um, fit. So being able to change your form of transport is certainly a, a, a much more sensible evolution rather than buy one for, you know, your your least um, worst option, you know, a four by four that will wade through mud for the days that you want to go camping. So the final thing around this in terms of these drivers is really the changes that cities are going to make to really discourage driving. So we've said the car costs are going to increase. So let's look at some of the specifics of this. If you if you drive into London today, you're going to pay £15 um, per day. So what's that about? $20 per day congestion charge. Now, if you have an older diesel or an older petrol, and when I say an older diesel, that might be only five years old, you're going to pay an additional £12.50. So what's that about? $15, $16 for a low emissions, ultra low emissions zone cost. So this is, if your car is a higher polluting car, you're going to pay an additional charge on top of the £15. Now, when you add in parking, maybe £25 per day in London is not excessive, then you're going to see that driving into cities becomes very expensive. Now, add in the recent changes to the charging time. So they used to, it used to be free after six o'clock. It's now charged till 10. You used to pay, it used to be free at weekends. It's now chargeable. And then you look at the final expansion of the charging area itself. And what London points to is a model within cities where driving becomes very, very expensive. Now, and that's not just driving. It's the it's the ability to have a car within the city. Even if you don't drive it, you're going to be paying huge costs. So 
Gary, you say, well, what about electric cars? Clearly, they don't give the emissions. So therefore, you know, we're not going to see the charges. No way. There's, there is absolutely no way that these cities are going to stop taking the money out of your pockets. So what we'll see is what we've seen in a lot of taxation, whereas initially the taxation was brought in on emissions. Um, and when we saw the emissions fall, but as people moved to electric cars, we realised there was a big drop in the revenue, which... Um, you know, governments have become very attached to. So what they do is they shift, simply shift the way that they measure. So instead of charging on emissions, they charge on miles, they charge on entry. But that's not going to change. Even with electric cars, you might see a short-term dip when you buy the electric car, but you're not going to see the um, the removal of charging costs. It is going to become more expensive, even with electric cars. But there's also a much more bigger macro change that we're seeing as well due to COVID. So COVID has shown that we don't need to be in the cities as much. You know, we can work remotely, but also we know that a lot of people have recognised their quality of life is important. So London has seen a net reduction of people living in the city. So those with the financial assets to do so have temporarily, we think, relocated out of the city. Now, Clearly, that's been for those who have the resources to do that. But we know that the fastest growth of real estate is in those commuter areas. So people are moving out of the cities. They're moving to the green green belt areas. They're moving to the, uh, you know, more access to parks, fields, smaller towns, smaller schools, wide open space, but with the ability to go into the city. But as the city disincentivizes people going into it, are, they, are those people ever going to go back? And the risk here, I think, is that as cities increase the costs to recover, recover lost revenues, people will desert the cities and avoid them, staying locally, you know, within their local towns, increasingly ordering online. And when they do drive, they're driving, driving to areas that have a low cost. Instead of driving to the city, which might cost them 50, 50 pounds or, you know, $75, they're going to drive to a shopping mall where the parking's free, there's no congestion charge, and they're going to be welcomed. And, you know, for shopping malls, this really provides a potential opportunity if they recognise these shifts and embrace them. Gary, based on what you know and sense today, what do you anticipate the top predictions to be in the car industry? It was Peter Drucker who said the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And no one typifies that more than Elon Musk. So when you want to look at how the auto industry is going to evolve, certainly, you know, you're not going to go far wrong by looking at what Elon's doing. However, you know, we need to recognize that not everything's within his control. I think it was Casey Stengel, manager of the Yankees and later the Mets, who said, never make predictions, especially about the future. And the reason is that it isn't within, you might invent it, but you're not able to control all of those wider conditions. So, Predicting the future is incredibly difficult. Now, to be honest, a prediction, if I was going to make a prediction, it would be next week's lottery numbers, which I can't do. So instead, I'm going to use the word evolutions. Rather than predictions, we're going to look at what are those ongoing shifts? What are those trends and what are those developments that we expect to see? And the reason for calling them evolutions is really because they're going to evolve over time. They're not going to happen on one certain date. What we're going to see is shifts that start to um, pick up over the coming year, but they may last several years and they may not peak for a while. So let's start to look at five predictions. So the first one is, I think we're going to see more models based on the use of common platforms. Well, 
I know what you're saying, Gary, this has been the case for years with Ford, GM, Volkswagen. They've been using common platforms for years. They are. But I think we're going to see much more diversity here. The best example of what I've seen today is the terribly named eBussy from Electric Brands. That's E-B-U-S-S-Y. Terrible name for actually a really cool concept. So this is a modular electric base that can take a range of different bodies. Now, here's where it differs. Not just car bodies, but also trucks, pickups and camper vans. This is a real shift from what we've seen with a lot of the traditional companies. And the reason this matters is it isn't simply about manufacturing a common base and you know building and integrating things on top. It's a much more modular approach about having a common base and then being able to drop a lot of almost pre-built um, parts on top. And this modularization is certainly something I see as a much bigger shift in, in car making. And when we look at the massive car companies, there's so much potential there for getting a common base right, but allowing much, much more flexibility in terms of what you can put on top. And this is possible in a way that it hasn't been before, because all you're going to be doing between the, the top part, the, the, the cabin, the bit you sit on and the wraparound is actually giving the electric base commands. The limits, you don't have the same level of technical integration with um, you know, brakes, with steering, with gears, with transmission that you had before, because a lot of this can be electronic. It can be essentially fly-by-wire systems. So when you start to evolve the way that you build the car, you open up much more flexibility. The next shift, number two, we've talked about subscription models and pay-as-you-go and how you pay for the car. But I think what we're going to see is much more flexibility around the way that we pay for our cars. So today we've got really fixed payment models. Now, a few people can buy them, whether for cash or separate financing. You can lease them. You can have some form of long term hire. But essentially, in most cases, unless you're buying it outright and even when you buy outright, you're sort of thinking of this period of ownership, maybe three to four years. And so. What's the evolution around that? So the first one, we're going to see much more flexibility. Not only are we going to see longer leases, but also shorter ones as well. So being able to lease and access cars for weeks, but also months and then through to years. Now, traditionally, the limit around the pricing of three to four years, and it's evolving to five, is around balancing the ability to pay with the depreciation of the cost. Now, typically that depreciation is all is driven by a whole range of factors, but key in that is the essentially the depreciation, sorry, the depreciation of the car, the point and the cost of increasing servicing and the increasing value in the car over time. But as we look at much simpler cars in terms of technology with ele with um, electronic, uh, sorry, electric battery cars, we're looking at cars which potentially have a very long lifespan. Now, we know that the batteries are going to wear out and the engines will wear out and they'll need reconditioning. But ultimately, we're not going to see that same level of wearing out and that same level of cost that we see with a traditional engine and a traditional transmission. So we have the potential for people to be able to keep cars much, much longer without seeing those uh, maintenance costs increase. Now, the, the dynamic that this opens up is 
a shift to own a car for a much longer period. So instead of three years, because you know after three years or four years, the repair start, repair bill starts to go up, you could own a car for maybe five years, six years, seven years for the duration of the battery. And as we start to see companies start to have to take a responsibility for the upgrade and the maintenance and the replacement of the batteries, then there's a reason to have that going even longer. So what we see from the car companies is a real potential opportunity for them to really reward loyalty and think much more longer term. Around the payment models, we also have the potential for much more usage-based pricing. So insurance companies are now starting to do this in the US with refunds. So if you drive less miles than you predicted with COVID, then they'll refund this at the end of the contract. But GPS and you know electronic monitoring and use of smartphones allows us to do this much more real time. I think the other the other real time shift is going to be around car pricing. You know, access to roads is going to be much more uh, real time priced. Anyone who thinks um, tolls are not hit, not going to come, mistaken. They're already there in several European countries. We ha- they're going to come to the UK, and we're going to see them more and more in the US as we start to you know, differentiate using price as a differentiator for access. A final one is really, I think we're going to see, or we have the potential to see a shift to much more integrated pricing, much more integrated services around transport. So at the moment, if I want an Uber, I want to rent a car, I want to hire a car, buy a car. These are all very separate contracts, separate contracts, separate services, separate propositions. But actually, I don't want to hire a car if I own a car. And if I don't have a car, I don't have access to a car, You know, then I want to hire one. So if we think about this sensibly, we can see the potential for car companies to start to mix these together, to be able to say, instead of we are the company that builds your one car that you have for three years, we are the company that helps you with your transportation needs. We're going to provide you with beneficial rights to services, you know, beneficial um, pricing models for Uber. We're going to provide you with the ability to hire a car. We're going to provide you the ability to buy a car for a short period. So I think we're going to see that financial evolution of the model, which is going to really be much more advantageous, particularly particularly for people in cities. So you'd be able to flex between whichever model that you want within the framework of a wider contract. Number three, um, sustainability. Now we know that Electronic cars, e-cars, um, sorry, electronic cars, electric cars based on battery technology and hopefully later hydrogen te- technology offer significant benefits to the environment, particularly in terms of emissions. But there are some you know, costs to the environment which we often ignore. So batteries are incredibly damaging to the environment in terms of the building of those. There's still lots of questions around the recycling and the disposal of them. But also we've got several million tens, hundreds of millions of cars that run on petrol and diesel out there. And I think this is going to become a real challenge. So how do we start to evolve the use of electric without, you know, really scraping every um, mineral resource from the, from the world to build the batteries, but also then build, excuse me, but also then build big pits in the ground to dump all of the cars into that we've scrapped that are perfectly working. They're just not electric. So I think we're going to see an increased focus and shift towards a responsibility for sustainability, recycling, a really lifetime 
ownership and a lifetime model of ownership for the car. It's not going to be enough to say we've got a cool electric car that's really fast. They need to take the car companies are going to need to take much more responsibility in terms of what's going to happen to your existing car, what's going to happen when the battery reaches the end of its life, what's going to happen to those batteries. And I think this will become a real differentiator, companies that are able to step up and have that really transparent view of sustainability, right, recycling and lifetime ownership. Trend number four, the shift from me to we. So at the moment, the majority of cars, particularly autonomous cars, assume a world of one. They're full of sensors. They're designed to protect and help me. Now, this is both inefficient, but also expensive. I've got to have all of the sensors in my car. I've got to have all of the processing. I'm generating a huge amount of data unique to me. But I think what we're going to see is a shift to intelligent environments, intelligent communication between cars. So we're going to see increased communication, both with the environment and within an ecosystem of cars. And this makes much more sense. So at the moment, you can have a, you buy a new car, you'll have a, you can have an option in many cases, system, which will allow you to automatically um, detect how far the car in front is and warn you if the car behind is perhaps too close, although there's very little you can do about it. And really, this is massively inefficient. What will be far more efficient is cars able to communicate with each other, communicate with the environment and regulate their speed as a network. So instead of each car slow, speeding up and slowing down based on the distance with the car in front, we're, we're able to understand the concept of you know, a swarm of cars traveling together at the right speed, much closer because they're communicating, much closer than they would be able to do if they had individual sensors, but also able to interact with the environment as well. Now, this doesn't have to be, you know, a big brother control of the car thing, but it can be really simple things like limitations around speed zones. Now, these could be physical. So they're in the road and the car picks up at a certain point. It has to slow down for a dangerous corner. But it could also be, you know, the establishment of low speed zones around um, schools, for example, that at particular times limit speed. Now, this isn't a case of tying your hands and restricting the freedom. It's a case of saying, you know, we're going to have intelligent cars, so let's make them intelligent and benefit someone other than the driver, i.e. the school child. So we put a low speed zone in of, you know, 20 mile an hour, and actually we just limit cars to this. Now, the potential of doing that in terms of reduction of crashes, reduction of injuries is huge. So, and so, but this is only possible really if we start to think about an, an ecosystem that interacts that where the car interacts with the environment and other and and other um, objects in that whether cars or whether with um, you know environmental conditions and timing and events right the final one um, number five fifth trend increased customization now you 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 can already do this car manufacturers have long i'm going to use the word exploited they long exploited buyers' love for customization pre-purchase. So you want to buy a new car, you pick your whatever car you want, your Chrysler, your BMW, your Audi, and you have this massive list of things that you can add to that car before it's built. I mean, the reality is they're factory fitted, but you know they're largely um, ex you know things that you want on the car, but typically you're paying a lot of money for those. However, 
The ability to fit things after purchase, though the post-purchase change, is often really limited. So whilst you can have hundreds of things fitted, you know, hundreds of options fitted before you buy the car, you can, I mean, clearly some of those are going to be really limited. So, but the ones that you can fit post-purchase and particularly do efficiently in terms of cost are really restricted. So you have the ability to define the car before you buy it, but afterwards you can buy a few bits, but you can't make some changes. But then if we look at the cars that have had long longevity, you know, real longevity in terms of cars, VW camper vans, Land Rover Defenders, the, the, in the UK and Europe, the traditional Mini, the little Mini, there's a vibrant ecosystem of suppliers providing third-party parts and services to be able to modify and evolve those. Now, that third-party ecosystem isn't just limited post-purchase either. There are pre-purchase um, ecosystems already. So if you want to buy a Range Rover, you can have a huge range of options, you know, put on that new Range Rover. But also there are companies before you buy it, you know, before you buy your car, that you can buy your Range Rover from brand new that will already, that will extensively customize the engine, the bodywork, the performance, and give you a unique car pre-purchase. So when we start to look at some of the other earlier trends around the concept of longer term ownership, reduced cost for longer term ownership, upgradable operating systems, then there's a real need to be able to have cars that are much more um, upgradable, much more um, amendable, much more changeable, much more modular. And what we've seen, if we look at some other industries, particularly technology ones, we look at PCs, laptops, smartphones. Where we've seen increased um, upgradability and modularity, we see increased ownership. So there's a relationship here between the ability to um, have longevity of, an, of a product and also the ability to modify it. If you can't modify it, typically it becomes a, you know, a simple replacement. Now, when we go back to the sustainable driver, that becomes an issue. We're not going to be able to simply throw the car away. There's going to be a need and a hopefully responsibility for manufacturers to take responsibility for that. So I think when we start to look at that customization, that really opens a whole new whole new category of areas. So we see the customization, the potential for customization of brands for much more experience-led design in the car to be able to design a car and put those changes in that closer fits your lifestyle. Now, again, one of the areas we're seeing huge growth in is around trucks. And these are ultimately, for most people, lifestyle purchases. They're about, not about just shifting stuff, but about having a, uh, a vehicle that's able to adapt to what you want to do with it. And this is something that's going to continue. Certainly the ability to be able to take a vehicle and be able to really customize that and better fit what you want to do. And I did say five, but we're going to sleep. We're going to um, put a six one in there as well. And this is for the industry itself. So everything we've talked about so far is really consumer driven. But I think there's one which is going to drive the industry changes. And this is going to be access to resources. So both the natural resources, but also the manufacturing scale is going to bring consolidation mergers, but also increased partnerships with industry and government. So one good example of this, the local city government in Berlin has cooperated with Tesla to build a new factory there. Now, what this has done is essentially supported the destruction of a huge area of forest to become 
to make sure that they're at the center of sustainability. Now, this is the home of Volkswagen, Porsche, Audi, BMW, wanting to be at the center of the future of cars. So that alignment between industry and cars becomes absolutely critical. And I think that's the, the final um, trend. Access to resources is going to drive um, increased um, takeovers, mergers, but also increased partnerships. And that's going to be a real transformation, not just for those areas that partner with the government, but for areas that don't. So if you're not partnering with car companies, then you know, they've got a lot of choice. So we're going to see increased um, competition across cities globally to be able to attract the companies, these huge manufacturing plants, to be able to produce these resources. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.